Let's dive in. We're going to be in uh, Luke's Gospel this morning, um, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. If you know someone who you'd want to give it away to, uh, that's our passion, is spreading God's Word in this church. So please do feel the freedom to keep it. Um, But this morning we're in, in the New Testament, the third Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 is what we're going to read. Let me read it. We'll pray and then uh, we'll get going. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Let's pray, guys. God, we stand amazed that we can address you as Father this morning in Jesus. And we've come to realize through the past couple weeks, I hope, just a little bit of what that means. That like a good dad, or like the best possible dad, like a perfect dad, you are ever watchful ever listening, ever caring, ever providing, always ready, always wanting what is best for your kids. And we just tuck ourselves up under the name of Jesus, the true Son, the one who truly deserves your affection and delight. And we walk into the family room and experience the same care. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we even get to be here. Thank you that we get to open up the words of your Father and anticipate His voice. Him speaking to us. Jesus, thank you. I pray that you'd be present. Trust that you are. I pray you'd be moving upon the hearts of your people. I pray you'd be moving upon the hearts of those not yet your people. That rebellion and and doubt and addiction and rejection would be overcome in this room this morning and in its place would be the glorious reality of adoption. Use this time towards that end and towards even more than I could think to ask or imagine. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Um, okay, i got to get moving. This is... Uh, Now, really, week three on Luke's uh, version of the Lord's Prayer here. Um, 
and I anticipate we'll probably be at least on this topic for another couple weeks. Uh, I've loved it so much, and I hope that you uh, have or will as as well. Um, if you have not been with us, and even if you had, um, I feel like a quick review would be helpful for for us all. So. Let me at least just say a couple things before I, I dive in here this morning and let you know where we've been. First thing to recall is that Jesus, in this prayer uh, that he's laying out here, is really, uh, he's not providing some sort of formula for us to mindlessly recite and thereby kind of get what we want from God. Here's the magic words. That's, this is not an incantation. It's not some sort of mantra. Uh, what we have here is instead, a, what, I, what I've said, a, a pattern. A pattern after which we can kind of model our own prayer life. Um, a, a pattern from which we can kind of build out our own prayers. Um, and I showed you how I think the pattern here is kind of dividing into three parts. We see that prayer involves first this idea of adoring God. Adoring God for all that He is all that he has done for us. Um, And I saw that there at the beginning of verse 2, really, just by the entry point word, Father. Even the way that Jesus says we should enter prayer is to see the benevolence of God, to know him as Father, to know we're cared for, we're provided for, we're loved by him. So there's this adoration involved in prayer, adore. Uh, secondly, we talked about, uh, with regard to this pattern, uh, as we move towards verse 2 and, and through verse 2, we start to see there's this idea of surrendering. Uh, there's this idea of, hey, listen, I, I, I see you as Father and I, I want your name to be hallowed. I want your kingdom to come, this idea of laying down my own name, my own kingdom, and I begin praying for his. So, surrendering. We move from adoring through surrendering, and then to the third part uh, of this pattern there that emerges in verses 3 through 4, which is really what we're going to focus on today, and it's this idea of knocking. Or coming to God with our own needs, with our own requests. I, I come to God as Father, I surrender all to Him, but I also bring my real and pressing needs. In other words, I say things like, I need bread. I need forgiveness. I need you to protect me, to keep me strong in the face of temptation or evil. We start talking about our, the stuff that we need, the stuff that we are dealing with. Now, quickly, you'll recall how I said last time what Jesus gives us here is not simply a pattern, merely. But I think also this pattern actually starts to set out certain priorities for us in prayer. And what we start to see is the first flows into the second, flows into the third. What I mean is, is by praying Father, by adoring Him and knowing Him and His goodness, what's the natural kind of response that flows out from that? Well, would it not be surrendering? Because I know you're good, because I know you're caring for me, and I can trust you. Hey, listen, My life is yours. And even beyond that, I want other people to know the kind of care that I know. Let your name be hallowed and your kingdom come. You do that. 
And then one of the other things I said is, is flowing from that second prayer of surrender. It's kind of surprising, but we actually start to see it is a natural uh, uh, um, chain of events to then bring our own needs. Because here's what we come to understand when we know God as a loving Father. We know that He cares about our needs. And even though we surrender all things to Him, in that surrender, we're not then supposed to kind of step back and say, therefore, I won't ever tell you anything that I have. No, what we, what we come to find is that that surrendering uh, is not so much an absent of, of, absence of request. Instead, it's like a, a, the type of way that we bring our request. We come and we say, man, here's what I need. Here's what I want. Here's what I have. But like Jesus would say, not my will, but yours. I trust you to do what's best with it. And beyond that, I said a few other things that were important and I want us to remember. We, we understand as we follow Jesus in this prayer that when we bring our requests, we are not demanding of him like a master to a slave or something like that. Instead, we're giving him opportunity. Opportunity to show the world what kind of father he is by the way he provides and cares for our needs. The world is going to know what our dad is like by looking to uh, his kids and how he cares for them and provides for them. So what we come to find out is a concern for God's glory, a concern for God's name does not mean we don't bring our needs but rather, we can bring our needs even still with a concern for his name and say, hey, listen, here's what I have as your kid. Please, God, show yourself to be a good father by providing for the needs of, of me, my family, my kids, whatever it may be. Through this idea of um, adoring, surrendering, and knocking, I put forward that acronym that really stands as the title of these um, these messages, and you may find it helpful in remembering in your own prayer life, but this idea of ask, adore, surrender, knock, ask. We come to God in prayer and we ask. Um, so last week we looked at adore and surrender in particular, now we turn to this idea of knocking, verses 3 and 4. Um, the image of a person knocking actually comes from the parable that follows this prayer Jesus gives us in verses 2 through 4. Um, we'll look at this parable next week, but I do want to at least show you this now. Uh, verse 9 of uh, Luke 11 there, Jesus comes and kind of sums up the meaning of the parable he gives of this guy knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door. And he says this, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So the idea of knocking is really this idea of bringing our real selves to the real God uh, to find real help for our real needs. He's inviting us, especially in verses 3 through 4 of our text, to bring our junk, to bring our desperation, to bring our stuff to Him and knock. God, your Father, wants to open the door. He cares about the details of your life. He wants, He is able to help. 
Now, when we look um, closer at verses 3 through 4, what we find is that three different types of requests emerge. Um, we see the request for first provision there in verse 3, the idea of daily bread. We see the request for pardon there in the first part of verse 4, this idea of forgive me for my sins. And then we see uh, this request for protection there in the latter part of verse 4, namely, hey, listen, lead me not into temptation. And those three really are going to serve as our outline here this morning. So if you're live, if you're with me, let's go. Um, Verse three, this idea of knocking, this idea of requesting provision. Give us each day our daily bread. I want to take this idea of daily bread and, 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 and break it down one word at a time. First, looking at this idea of daily. Um. The word translated daily here, in the Greek at least, is tough. Um, I guess it's one of the only instances um, where they even see this word, and there's hardly anything like it outside the Bible. Um, So there's confusion about exactly what it means, but the bottom line, the basic sense is plain, and that's what you gather from the English translation daily. Namely, the idea is God gives us, your Father will give you just enough. Just enough for the day or for tomorrow or for the needs of the, pre- of the moment, the pressing needs of the moment. Your Father will give you just enough. Now, if you heard me on that, if you really heard me, and you're engaging here, I think you'll feel the tension in this idea that God provides just enough. Because as human beings, and then especially as Americans... Uh, we don't want just enough. We don't want just enough. We're not used to just enough. We like the contingency plans and the insurance plans and the, all the things behind and around and supporting structures to make sure that if, you know, I have more than enough. I don't just want daily bread. I want Bread for the week, bread for the month, bread for the year, bread for my retirement, laid up so that I know I can kick back in my older years. I want all of that. I don't just want bread. I don't just want just enough. I don't like the idea of daily bread. If we're honest, it leaves us feeling insecure. Like I wake up each day going, I sure hope I get what I need for today. I like to go to bed the night before going, man, I feel good for the next couple years, at least. So what we come to find out, you guys, though we would never say it, is that even as Christians, we're oftentimes working and living and laboring in such a way so that if God were not to show up, we know we'd be all right. We actually like to try, and we, we labor, we work to try to develop a, 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 a structure supporting us where we no longer need God. God. It's nice if God does show up, and we hope He will, and we're good Christians, we think He will, but if He doesn't, we'll be okay. In other words, we spend a lot of our time trying to work God out of a job. That, that's the way I thought about it. There's, there's a certain pride, there's a certain arrogance, there's a certain insanity in the human heart as if we could ever do such a thing, as if we could even take the next breath. 
without Christ upholding us like he does all things. And yet we try. And here is where this prayer Jesus gives us for daily bread comes into the picture, comes in to help. God is not willing to give us all of this if it means we will forfeit on the thing he cares most about, namely, dependent, childlike relationship with him, our Father. That's what he cares about. And what he knows is that oftentimes, if we get what we you know, need for the year, well, then we will run off with it. Thank you very much. And like the prodigal, we won't come back until it's run out. And so because he's trying to develop relationship with you and me, because he wants us in daily connection so he can, he can confirm and show and assure and assure and assure and assure us that he loves us, he wants to keep this daily ongoing need for bread and this conversation going. The picture behind this idea of daily bread, um, some of you familiar with the Old Testament, if you've been around for a while, we've already talked about this in some places already in the Gospels. It's quite clear that the idea of daily bread probably has behind it the Old Testament picture of manna, which if you recall Israel in the wilderness, where in the world are they going to get their food? Where are they going to get food for the month, the year, whatever? They're not going to get that. They're wandering in the wilderness. And God says, listen, I'll give you something called manna. This bread, if, if you will, from heaven. And it will be enough. It will be just enough for the day. Like You might try to gather more. But at the end of the day, the sun will melt it away. Or if it makes it through to the next day, you'll find that it's rotted. And let's be clear, it's not a preservative issue. It's not as if, hey, well, they didn't have the technology that we do. And now they could have, you know, placed a lot in the pantry and kept it going. No, that's not the issue. But you want to know how we know? Because God says, listen, on the day before the Sabbath, go ahead and gather two. Go ahead and gather two days worth. I'll make sure it lasts. Because I want the Sabbath to be a day of rest. And I want you to learn again and again and again, I provide daily. So every other day it's going to rot on the second day. That day, hey, it's going to last. So, in other words, what God is getting at here, it's not a shelf life issue, it's not an expiration date preservative issue, it's a relationship issue. He is trying to teach His people and us to rely on Him, to depend on Him for our every need, moment by moment, day by day. Jesus, or I'm sorry, um, um, Moses would say as much really in Deuteronomy 8.3 when he tells us why the manna. He, God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? Why, Moses? Why did God do this? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, to sum it up, the daily bread was all about connecting you to the eternal God. He made you, you know, rely on Him day by day for bread so that you would know you don't need bread. <laughs> you need God. You need Him. Not more in your pantry, but close relationship with your Father. You have that, you have everything you need. That's Jesus in the wilderness and the temptation, right? 
The devil says, leave your father. Turn those stones to bread. Get the food you need now. God, or Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 8 says, no. It's written, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father's mouth. If I leave the Father to get bread, I lose everything. But if I let the bread, if I leave the rocks over there and I have the Father, I will get what I need. You just wait. That's the idea of daily bread. We see this reflected in the prayer of Proverbs 38 and 9. I, I think this is interesting. He says this, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I mean, who would ever want to pray like this? We want to pray, give me more, give me, get, you know, give me uh, all the stuff in the bank account, build it up. He says, don't, God, don't you give me too much. If I have too much, I don't think I need you and I run off. Keep me dependent because the relationship with you is what's the most important thing. But then he says, on the other hand, don't give me too little. <laughs> I love that. Because again, it comes back to this idea of his name. Your name will be profaned. Well, what does it mean? Well, you're going to look like an absentee dad to the world. You're going to look like a bad father if your kids are all dying of starvation. Give me just enough. Show the world how faithful you are day by day. No doubt, I think... Um, Many of us have kind of experienced this tension of just enough. Probably a lot of us wrestling with it, wishing that heaven could just be brought in now, wishing that glory could come now, wishing that we could experience finally freedom from whatever it is that's pressing in, whether it's uh, physical stuff or it's financial stuff or it's relational stuff or the difficulty and we feel like we just kind of get through one wave and then another one's coming and we go, man, it kind of feels like God's scrambling. It kind of feels like he doesn't have the resources to provide, like a guy who's kind of defaulting on his payments and so he kind of empties his pockets out on the table and says, this is what I got this week, I'll get you a little bit more next week. As if God is making big promises but not able to deliver for us. But that's not what we're reading here. What we see is, is God's resources are not limited, but they are metered. Does that make sense? They are unlimited, but they are metered. Meaning, He doesn't give us it all up front. Because He loves us and He wants us to grow in dependence on Him. And I know it's hard. Believe me, um, if I could share even just a personal story on this. Some of you know, since our arrival here, um, it kind of seemed like my family's kind of gone through one physical health scare after another. Um... Just to give you some of the, the, the big ticket items, uh, I'm thinking of things like uh, I landed myself personally in the hospital with an asthma attack for a day. I was going, what? I haven't had it. I've never had an asthma attack. What am I doing in the hospital right now? Or um, some of you may recall we had a, a miscarriage at 13 weeks, the time when, hey, they say you're safe to announce. You've made it through the first trimester, and then we're in the hospital 
basically giving birth to our dead little baby. Um, some of you uh, may recall or have been praying even as we were dealing with this tumor that was on my wife's liver and all the doctors looking in prior to were saying, man, everything I see, odds are it looks like cancer. And from what we know, cancer is not going to develop in your liver. If it's there, it's probably because it's stage four and it's metastasized from somewhere else. We say, what in the world? Um, or now we have my son, who is amazing, love him, but he's behind developmentally. So the doctor is saying, hey, uh, we actually need to get him scheduled with something called Early Start, uh, so that he can be screened for things like autism and stuff. Um, we don't think he has that. Megan and I personally, we're hopeful, but there may be something going on there. And so there's uh, another piece to just kind of uh, fall on our knees and pray, ask what's going on. But then this last week, something happened with my little uh, Bella. Um, on Monday, she goes into uh, get kind of a routine physical, annual kind of physical from her pediatrician, and everything's going normal. I wasn't there, but Megan was. She kind of recounted this for me. Uh, everything's going normal, and then the guy busts out his stethoscope, and he starts to do some things, and then suddenly the whole kind of uh, tenor in the room kind of changes, and you start to see him going here and there and back and forth and lay down and stand up and things that you don't see in a regular meeting and Megan's getting concerned and he's looking concerned and then we come to find out that he says, yeah, she has a heart murmur and you need to um, uh, get an appointment with a pediatric cardiologist immediately. Uh, so we've known people that have had heart murmurs, and perhaps you even yourself, some have even told me you've had them. Um, they can be normal, they can be common, and so we're like, okay, hopefully it will be okay, but as we did a little bit more research, what we found is that pediatricians have been trained to identify the difference between what they think could be serious and not. Why? Because it's expensive to refer you to a specialist. And so they are supposed to be able to identify, oh, here are the innocent murmurs, the kind of normal stuff, and here's the things that are starting to move into the yellow and red zone. And those serious ones we send out, and so we're going, are you serious? So this is, the doctor's basically saying, my daughter has a serious problem with her heart, potentially. So thankfully we were able to get in this last week. But what do you do before I tell you what happened, what do you do in these moments? What do you do with this? What do you make of these sorts of things happening in your life? And I'm sure mine, the stuff in my life, would just hold a candle to some of the things you guys have been to. Or can't even, I guess is the phrase, right? Yours would be just bigger. I know that you guys deal with a lot. What do we make of this? What do we do in these moments? Is God a bad dad? Why do we feel like we kind of get up from one wave just to have another one crash over our head? Why can't we just kind of, oh, we got through the valley of the shadow of death. Now we can coast. Why does it feel like this whole life on this side of heaven is lived in the valley? What do you do? Well, I'll tell you, there are always two ways you can go in the face of trial. You can raise a fist or you can raise a hand. 
You can throw blows at God, or you can throw yourself into his lap, (laughs) into his open arms, and trust that daily he will provide for the troubles that you face. Each day has enough troubles, right? Tomorrow takes care of itself. Let's get through the valley today. So what did we do? We prayed. We threw ourselves onto our father's lap. We knocked on that door and we asked him to help. And praise God, he heard. It was actually really awesome. We go in there, I mean, we're terrified of what we're going to find out about our little girl and the possibility for heart surgery, all those other things that could come. You know, we've been through this enough to go, okay, God, you know what? It might not be anything, so we'll see. And uh, it was awesome. The guy breaks out his stethoscope. He's got like this amplifier on it so he can hear all this stuff. And he's listening. He starts to look confused. And you're like, what does that mean? Is this really bad? We're not sure what's going to happen. And uh, and he says, gosh, you know, I'm surprised your doctor could even hear this. He said, in my notes, the, the pediatrician wrote that the murmur was dominant, which means this could be a potential problem. And he said, usually I get referred people that are going to have problems. I get the bad news stuff. He said, but I got this stethoscope turned up, a better one than he even has. I can barely hear it. He said, this is just normal development stuff. And, uh, you know, so praise God, it was just like, wow. I mean, there are different natural explanations you could put on it, but it was just Regardless, it was miraculous for us and a, an example of God's provision and His fatherly care. Now, does God always answer in this way? We'll talk about it more next week. No. I mean, we've had plenty of things that we've knocked and knocked and the answer's been no, but the, re- the reality is, is that God is always going to answer in one way or another. The door is always going to open in one way or another. He's always going to bring you close and, and comfort you and help you and show you what's going on, even if it's not always what you want. But He is there. And there's this daily dependence, this daily need, this daily relationship that He wants with each one of us. And he's developing that relationship of trust. Give us each day our daily bread. Let me touch on that idea of bread for a moment. Um, With the idea of bread, I think Jesus is basically referring to kind of the fundamental essentials for human life. He's touching on what you and I need just to even survive. And he's saying, ask my father for that. Bread is, the, is, the, is a basic building block, you could say. It is a, it is a bare necessity. Um, so by highlighting our need to pray for something as basic as bread, Jesus is essentially saying we need to be praying for everything. <laughs> there is nothing we can take for granted, nothing we can handle on our own. If you can't handle bread, you can't handle anything. You need him for, for everything, every day, at every point. But there's another side to this idea of our dependency, and, and, and we can draw this out from Jesus' invitation to pray this way as well. Uh, not only are we dependent on bread and God for everything, uh, or I should say God for everything, including, including bread, um, what we come to find out is that God is actually happy to provide it. 
that Jesus is not just saying, hey, you guys are so needy. He's saying, my father loves to give. That's why I say, he, he's saying, come, knock, ask. Bug him about the littlest stuff in your life. You think it's insignificant. You think it's no big deal. My heavenly father cares about it. And he wants you to talk to him about it. You save the big ticket items for him, like the mission trip you're about to go on, or the person you want saved, or the spiritual stuff in your life. He's saying, talk to your dad about bread. Talk to him about the bank account that's dwindling. Talk to him about the ache in your back. If you're thinking about it, turn that monologue, like I've said before, to dialogue. Everything should be an in and out dialogue with God in prayer. He cares about every detail of your life. Nothing is too low. Nothing is too insignificant. That's the idea. Praying for daily bread. He wants involved. He cares. Um, If you should ever doubt such a thing, um, that's why I gave away George Schmuller's autobiography. Uh, you, You need to... Read that and watch how God provides for him. Uh, George Mueller's life uh, is essentially a test on this very point in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. George Mueller said, okay, let's stop talking about um, um, theories and, and ideologies and, and, and you know uh, good ideas and dreams. Let's actually do this. So he sells all that he has. And then he says, all right, I'm not even going to tell other people that I have needs. I'm simply going to talk to God about it. He pastors a church. He starts orphanages. He has a family. But he says, listen, I'm not going to send out support letters. Nothing wrong with support letters. Nothing wrong with letting people know that you have needs. He said, but I want to see God. If I pray this prayer, if I bring these needs to you in the, in the private of my prayer closet, what's going to happen? You're going to be a good dad. You're going to provide for my daily bread. I'm going to record the answers to these prayers in that book so that future generations of your children will know you're a good dad. You provide. So basically, that that book is just a compilation of journal entries, God's provision for him in miraculous ways to encourage us to pray for our daily bread. God cares about it. And the relationship that develops is so sweet. Let me read you just a little bit from his autobiography so you can kind of get the flavor of it. Nothing has come in, he says. He's talking about the needs that he has for his orphanages and things. Nothing has come in. At six o'clock this evening, our need was very great in the orphan houses and the day schools. I prayed with two of the laborers. We needed some money to come in before eight o'clock tomorrow morning so that we could buy milk. Not like, you know, nice resources or new iPads for the kids, but milk. We don't have milk if God doesn't show up. So we could buy milk for breakfast. Our hearts were at peace and we felt assured that our Father would supply our need. We had scarcely risen from our knees when I received a letter containing a sovereign. Uh, That's what used to be a British gold coin. Uh, So a letter containing a sovereign for the orphans. About five minutes later, a brother promised to give me 50 pounds next week. A quarter of an hour after that, a brother gave me a sovereign which a sister in the Lord had left for the orphans. How sweet and precious it is to see the willingness of the Lord to answer the prayers of his needy 
children. And the book is just filled with this. We have needs for basic, bare essentials. We get on our knees, we pray, and God shows up. It's put on someone's heart. A door, a door, a knock. Someone knocks at the door. They have something for us. It's just what we needed. And there's this relationship with our Father. What I've tuned into now, seeing the Lord's Prayer, is how often Mueller talks about God as Father. Because I said, I think that's the entry point to all meaningful prayer, is knowing him in this way. And it's interesting to see, that's, his, that's the way he always is referring to God. But he's talking about this relationship develops because of this daily need and God's daily provision. This is what he says elsewhere. Truly, it is worth being poor and greatly tried in faith. I wonder if any of you could say this. Truly, it is worth being poor and greatly tried in faith for the sake of having such precious daily proof of the loving interest with our, which our Father, uh, I think I miswrote this wrong, daily proof of the loving interest which our kind Father takes in everything that concerns us. How could our Father do otherwise? He says it's worth it to be poor. Because I get this daily evidence of God's, our Father's provision and care. Like we have this mirage. We, ha- we, we chase after this mirage of security. We think we'll feel better when the bank has a lot of money in it. When the pantry has a lot of food, we'll feel more secure. Then he's saying, no. I mean, the moth can get into the pantry. The thief can get into the bank. You want security? I'll tell you, I have so much more security being daily dependent on my Father because He is daily providing for my needs. And this relationship that I have with Him, I feel like I can walk on air. I know He's got my back. That changes everything. He cares about our daily bread. He invites us to pray for it. Second thing we see after provision then is this idea of requesting, knocking, praying for pardon. That's the first part of verse 4 there where Jesus encourages us to pray like this. Forgive us our sins. Now, the transition from daily bread to praying for forgiveness is interesting. And I think it implies that just as we need to pray for daily bread, so too we also need to pray daily for forgiveness. And this point would be... Um, I think made even more certain by the fact that Jesus is not saying, hey, pray this once and you're good. He's saying, when you pray, pray like this. God, forgive me. So this is a model for us to take into our prayers all the time. In other words, we need forgiveness every day. We need an ongoing relationship with our Father where we say, I'm sorry. So, Reflection question for a moment. When's the last time you've got down on your face and said, God, I am sorry. There's a genuine freedom that comes from that. Let me just tell you. I mean, even as I say it there, it's like there's a freedom. We, we try to uphold our image. We don't like to say it. When we finally say it, we go, whoa, I needed to release that. 
Because it's true. I needed to own that because it's true. When's the last time we got down on our knees and said, I'm sorry? When's the last time we were in the back of a church service like that tax collector in the back of the, the synagogue or the temple, wherever that was, in Jesus' parable, when he's beating on his breast, we're told. And he's saying, God, forgive me. Have mercy on me, the sinner. We like to think, okay, that maybe is for the entry point to the Christian life. Prayer like that. Or maybe I'll reserve a prayer like that for when I commit one of those big red letter sins. You're like, oh, the one that everybody kind of goes, oh, one of those. Maybe I should say that. God, forgive me. Cry out for pardon in those moments. But listen, not those little innocent things as if there ever were such a one. What we see in Matthew's uh, Sermon on the Mount is that that. that The innocent, quote-unquote, and the red letter are cut from the same cloth. That to look upon a woman with lust in our eyes is the same as rolling around in the sheets with her. Or that to cut down a person in anger with our words is the same as pulling out a dagger and driving it in their back. Cut from the same cloth. It's a part of the same junk. The same weed root system in us called sin and we need forgiveness. It's the stuff, big and quote unquote small, that Jesus gives his life for. To pay for our ransom. To pay for our pardon. And we need that forgiveness daily. Repentance daily. Just like I need daily bread. Father, forgive me for today's sin. Just like we did with the request for bread, we could also do it with this request for pardon. Jesus teaching us to pray this way not only indicates our great dependence, our great need and desperation for it, it actually also communicates God's happy provision. That God, he's inviting us to come and ask for forgiveness because God is happy to give it. I mean, you think of those parables in Luke 15 that I can't wait to get to where it's like, man, uh, when one sinner repents, it's like I just rejoice. All of heaven rejoice. I delight to, to forgive those who offend me. Is that amazing? I love to welcome in the rebel. I love to wash the filthy. Gosh, what an amazing thing. What an amazing father. Now, if you noticed, I pulled up short on this second request there in verse 4. as Jesus goes on to connect our request for forgiveness with our willingness to forgive others. He says this, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now that is troubling. I don't have time to deal with all the implications of that or to help relieve whatever your concerns might be regarding it. (laughs) But what I can say is this. I, I think he's touching on the reality put forward plenty of other places in the New Testament. Namely, you cannot be right with God if you are wrong with your fellow man. Can't do it. You cannot bless God, as as John would say. You cannot bless God with your lips and curse your neighbor. 
The two are not compatible. You cannot truly enjoy God's forgiveness while withholding forgiveness from those who have turned on you. Hurt you in some way. Peter connects this idea to prayer, actually, in 1 Peter 3, 7. It's interesting when he says this to husbands. Husbands, love your, or husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that... Why live with your wife in an understanding way? Why show her honor, love, tender care? So that your prayers may not be hindered. (laughs) In other words, he just unmasks this idea that we can be at odds with our spouse or another person and be fine with him. We can be harsh. We can be bitter. We can be upset. We can be not understanding impatient, and then call upon God for his patience. Can't happen. There's going to be a breakdown in your prayers in those moments. Your prayers will be hindered because of that stuff. Even if you're in the right, even if this person has wronged you, what we are coming to God and saying in our prayers when we ask for forgiveness is, God, I've wronged you. You are in the right if you were to judge me. But you put that judgment on Jesus. And I need that. I need that afresh today. How can we pray for that while at the same time refusing to let that same grace move towards others? The vertical must spill into the horizontal or we can have no confidence that we have what we're praying for. That's another point of reflection, I know. Are there people in our lives where they're in, they're in the dungeon? They're locked. Let me tell you one last thing on this second point here. I think this is amazing. Um, so often when people sin against us, when we get hurt, a sort of vortex develops. A vicious cycle, um, a feedback loop, you could say, where what often happens is, is your sin starts to beget mine. Because you wounded me, I want to wound you. Because you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Perhaps you've heard, hurt people, hurt people. There's this vortex, there's this vicious spiral, and we kind of are waiting for the other to make that first move. You owe me, you tell me you're sorry, you say uncle, you come and show me that you mean it, then maybe I'll move towards you. And they're saying the exact same thing, but you hurt me, and you did this, and we're stuck in this feedback loop, and sin goes on and on and on, and unforgiveness and wounds, and it just develops, and it becomes this sort of tornado that can destroy destroy a home or destroy a relationship, destroy a soul. How do you break free from that? 
secular psychology really has no adequate answers, but we, brothers and sisters, have Jesus. We have the one who broke out of the cycle. Do you understand this? All the world is, you wound me, I wound you. Jesus says, you wound me, I reach forward to heal you. In fact, my wounds become the very means of your healing. And the cycle is broken just like that on the cross at Calvary. Father, forgive them. Wow, what an amazing reality. It changes everything because what it means is those people who know this forgiveness can now themselves break out of the cycle. I don't need you to pay me back. I don't need you to make the first move. I don't need you to make right everything that you made wrong in me, mom, dad, ex-wife, whatever it is. Because he is doing that. And therefore, just like he moved towards me, though I wounded him, and he heals, I can move towards you. That's the movement of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Let me just kind of get off my soapbox and get back. Okay. Third, protection. Now, i got to keep an eye on the time. <sighs> protection. So we see provision we're praying for, pardon we're praying for, protection. Let me just say a few words on this and we'll close. Um, this is the last part of verse 4. Jesus tells us to pray like this. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. The basic idea I think here really is this. God, give us strength to walk away from sin. Even in the most trying circumstances. Don't let me give way under pressure. Help me to resist. Help me to stay strong. Help me to flee from that and flee towards you. Don't lead me into temptation. Don't let go of me. I not only want forgiveness from the penalty of sin. I want freedom from its power. And that's the critical point that I want to bring out here for a moment. I recently heard these lines from that classic hymn, Rock of Ages. And it stuck out to me and I realized that they fit right in here. I wanted to read this to you. Um, It says this, Rock of Ages, talking about Jesus, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood From thy wounded side which flowed. Be of sin. Here's the part. Excuse me. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. It's that idea of the cross of Christ as the double cure that I think is going on even as we move towards this third request. It's the idea of I don't just want forgiveness from the penalty. Save from wrath. I want freedom from the power of sin. Make me pure. I don't just want no consequences for my bad stuff. I want to get rid of the bad stuff. I want to look more like my Father in heaven. I want to be transformed. I I want justification. 
to be counted righteous in Christ. And I want ongoing progressive sanctification to grow more righteous practically in my life because of Jesus. So don't just forgive me for my sin. Don't let me give in to sin. I don't want it. I don't like it. Again, point for reflection. A lot of times, if we're honest, we'll pray for forgiveness. We'll pray for pardon. We'll pray for forgiveness from the penalty. But in our hearts, we know, I don't really want to be free from it. I just kind of want to go back to it again. I don't want hell. I don't want discipline. Don't want judgment. But I want sin. Judas could pray for provision and even for pardon. But he wouldn't dare pray for protection from temptation. He had already made plans to indulge it. So this point in the prayer brings us to that place. Facing, do I actually want to be freed from it? Here's what I'll tell you. If the answer is no, you're going to be one of the most miserable people on the planet. Here's how I know. Here's what I mean. You won't be able to fully enjoy the things of the world because God is kind of over your back looking over. You kind of feel guilty because you want both. You want friendship with God. You want forgiveness. But you also want the world. You want the stuff. You want the sin. What will happen is you won't be able to fully enjoy the world because you're trying to be a friend of God. And you'll always feel like he's looking over your back. Kind of not like a good father, but like a boss. Well, you're doing that again? Get in my office. You won't enjoy the stuff. You'll feel guilty about it. Your conscience will scream out, hopefully, because he loves you. But on the other side, you won't be able to enjoy God either in full. Because your heart is with the world. And so you you won't be able to enjoy either. You'll be in the most miserable state. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, be a wholehearted, happy Christian. Forsake sin altogether. Not just its penalty, but its power. It looks good, but it's, it's, it's on the end of a hook. And that hook gets in you, it's no good. It's destructive. Be a wholehearted, happy Christian. Enjoy God with everything that you have. Pray not just for pardon. Pray for protection. The last thing I will say, just in conclusion, general note about this prayer as a whole. As Americans, we are so individualistic. We're prone to run everything through the grid of self. Prayer is no different. We kind of think of it as something that I do with God alone. But I wonder if you noticed the plurals. 
the plural subjects in our text. Jesus doesn't say, give, when he teaches us how to pray, give me my bread. Forgive me my sin. First person singular. Give me protection. Lead me not into temptation. No. He teaches us to pray together. He teaches us to pray in the first person plural. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. In other words, what did I do when Bella, you know, came back from the pediatrician and we found out that we were in dire need of our father's care? Well, I told you one thing we did. We prayed personally. We prayed privately. We prayed alone. But the other thing we did was email out to our home group. Please, will you pray for us? Pray with us. Approach the Father's ear on our behalf. Because we think we are called to pray together. We pray better together. So I wonder... Are you doing that? Are you, are you bringing things? Like, think about this. If you're struggling with sin, with what I just talked about, lead us not into temptation. If that's where you are, is that something you try to deal with alone? God, I'm sorry, help me. Or are you calling in brothers and sisters, letting them into the dark, and saying, pray with me here? Are you a part of a home group? Are you a part of a community that knows how to meaningfully pray for you? The stuff you're really, really facing? Are you, and do you know how to meaningfully pray for others? Or are you trying to do this thing alone? Because Jesus is teaching us to pray together. His house, his father's house is a house of prayer. And his children come together in the name of Jesus and knock on the father's door. I suppose we'll in there. Let's pray. God, you are good. And... Um, We are grateful that you provide, that you pardon, that you protect. Jesus, thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that we get to tuck up inside of your name and bring uh, our requests. You say in John, ask anything in my name of the Father and he will do it so that he may be glorified through me. It's amazing what you've done for us and the privilege that we have now in you, Jesus. We give you thanks for it. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen.